It's been less than a year since Mike Kehoe became Missouri's lieutenant governor, and the Republican official has been in the mix for some executive and legislative branch endeavors. Kehoe joins us next on Politically Speaking to break down his first few months in office, so let's hit the music. This is Politically Speaking, the longest-running episodic podcast about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. Well, we want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. I am recording this, I was going to say live, but actually taped from the Lieutenant Governor's Office in Jefferson City, Missouri. So naturally, our, our guest today is... Mike Kehoe. The Lieutenant Governor. I'm not interviewing the State Treasurer in the Lieutenant Governor's Office. No, that probably wouldn't work too well. It would probably be kind of weird. Um, so how, so you've been Lieutenant Governor for almost, not quite a year, maybe six, seven, eight months at this point. What, what's been the transition like from being um, in the Missouri Senate to being a statewide official? Well, first of all, Jason, thanks for having me on. Um, we've enjoyed a good relationship over the years, and I've always appreciated um, how fair you've been as a reporter and as a person. Um, the transition has been interesting. Um, the, the constitutional part of the job, which if uh, your listeners don't know what the lieutenant governor does, they join 99% of Missourians. Uh, there's not a lot of people who know what the lieutenant governor does, and, and that's okay. The constitutional part of the job of uh, presiding over the Senate, that part of the transition uh, that's occurring now during session, that's been very smooth for me because, as you mentioned, I served eight years in the Senate. You remember when you covered the Senate many years ago regularly that uh, before I was a majority leader, I presided a lot on the dais. So that, that piece has been very smooth. Um, the part about getting around the state and meeting people, that's uh, been exciting. Uh, that's the best way I can put it. The transition has been well because people are very um, receptive, receptive in Missouri, especially with the programs that we oversee, um, you know, veterans, tourism, by Missouri, those are all things that are basically nonpartisan issues that um, uh, they're not rural, they're not urban, um, they're just, they're easy issues to go out and talk about. And um, I will tell you, the, the, the path was paved uh, by Governor Parson. He has done a great job of going around, around the state and uh, just kind of building back relationships, uh, getting Missourians to understand everything's gonna be okay. And when you follow in the wake of somebody like that, um, it sure makes things a lot smoother. You know, I, I have a quote here from one of your predecessors, uh, former Senator Tom, Thomas Eagleton. He once quipped that the lieutenant governor's office is only good for standing in an office window and watching the Missouri River go by. I'm sure you've heard that line of quotes before. But that was before they passed a constitutional amendment giving the lieutenant governor a lot more authority. And it seems because you and Governor Parson have a really strong relationship, he is giving you more responsibility than, say, when Jay Nixon and Peter Kinder were in office. So how does that dynamic work? Because my, my view is to avoid an Eagleton-like situation, you have to have a really strong relationship with, 
with the governor. So, so how is that going so far? It's, it's going great. I mean, um, the governor and I had a great relationship before all this happened. Um, as a highway commissioner, before I was ever in the Senate, I worked with then House Rep Mike Parson. Uh, then, of course, we went into the Senate together, worked on a lot of uh, issues together, and then he became lieutenant governor. And as I mentioned previously, my role as majority leader, lieutenant governor, majority leaders work very close together. But Mike Parson has a unique view. It's been a while since we've had a lieutenant governor become governor. And since he was two years in lieutenant governor's office, he saw uh, the potential of what you could use this office to do. And he feels very passionately about having an engaged lieutenant governor. Uh, and he, since he understands the office and understands what you can do with this office, he's made sure that uh, we stay plenty busy. And uh, the relationship has been very good. I have to be very candid with you. So when there was a vacancy in the lieutenant governor's office, I was not convinced that Governor Parson had the power to fill that vacancy. And then members of both parties kind of came out of the woodwork and said, yes, he does have this. They point to previous instances where lieutenant governors were appointed. And also the fact that if there's not uh, specific language saying, you know, the governor can't appoint somebody, it kind of reverts to the constitution that gives the governor power. Is there still any legal controversy over that, or is that pretty much passed at this point? All of the courts have found so far in the governor's favor that he has the ability to do that. It does now sit at the Supreme Court. Um, they had oral arguments back in November, I want to say. They have not come, handed down a decision yet. Um, the governor and I both agree that uh, we're just going to keep going and trying to work for Missourians and do what's best and let the courts figure out their thing, and, and we'll see where that lands. We will see where that lands. So let's talk about a couple of commissions that you actually were appointed to lead in the last, I don't know, week? <laughs> a few days. Uh, a few days. <laughs> um, let's talk about school safety first. Um, I was actually at a press conference where Governor Parson announced the formation of a, a school safety task force. Here's a little bit of, of the governor's reasoning for starting this and also putting you in charge. You're, you're actually in charge of the task force. Yes, sir. Right? It is important for me to make sure I do my part to give you the tools you need to be safe every day when you come to school. It's something most of us in Missouri take for granted. But we never know when things can occur or can get out of hand. It was important to come to your school today for me because I think schools like this is the heart and soul of who Missouri is and what you represent of all you students that are here today. So why do you think it's necessary to study this issue? As, as the governor kind of mentioned, you know, no school, two schools are alike, and I think different schools are going to have different needs when it comes to safety. What are you hoping to accomplish with this task force? Well, we're going to do more than study it. Um, we've put together a great group of people. The governor has put together a great panel that will help design some basic framework for school districts to follow. Many school districts have a great process in place, and we're not trying to upset that apple cart. We also don't believe in handing down mandates. We simply want to provide a template for schools to follow. And by the way, both public and private schools will be able to utilize this tool so that there's some consistency in what the safety plans are. Now, sometimes when people say school safety plans, they say school shootings. Well, that's part of safety plans, but so are tornadoes and earthquakes and bus transportation, et cetera. So we want, to, we want to provide a template for any district or any private school to adapt and use to kind of go through on how they can develop a consistent safety plan uh, for their school. And we just want that tool to be provided 
uh, for our schools and hopefully utilize them as you saw the Missouri School Boards Association Melissa Randalls is on this committee so we have in mind you know what school board uh, superintendents and, and school board members um, will will like or not like about something that you know the government kind of does so that's why we want to be careful it's not a mandate it's simply a it's simply a process for them to follow if they choose fit that they can adapt to their district or to their school to the best way possible to ensure the safe safest place for our students I think when uh, school safety is talked about in a public policy realm one one of the issues that's more controversial is like whether teachers should be armed or whether there should be armed police officers at certain mm -hmm. schools. Is that going to be part of the conversation? Those, those are local control decisions. I mean, we're not going to, I mean, uh, the, the group hasn't even met yet, so I shouldn't say we're, what we're going to do and we're not going to do. Right. But in previous conversations and talking to board members, decisions such as that needs to be left up to the local school boards. The governor and I both have very great respect for communities who elect local officials or, or citizens to be volunteers on their school boards. And so we want them to be able to make those types of policy decisions in their districts, not the state mandating something. Um, like some other task force or, or panels, uh, this, ha this, this particular school safety panel has to come up with a, a report pretty quickly. Very quickly. Are, are you hoping that this report eventually turns into legislation or it provides guidelines for school districts to act? Like, what are you hoping the end result of this if is? If we get through this and find out that there's some additional legislation needed, um, which we don't anticipate at this time, but if there is something that's needed that will give us plenty of time to uh, get that done um, at the governor's decision on when we take that forward, it could be something that can just be done as a regular course of session. But, um, you know, the, the, the template that we want to put out is due in July uh, so that schools can take a look at it before the next school year starts. And it's our, it's our hope that uh, school districts, no matter if they have a great plan in place or no plan in place, uh, they take a look at these things and see if there's anything they can use out of it to tweak and tune their, their process. Explore the craft of journalism from drone use to breaking news, ethics, and investigative journalism at Mini J School, a six-week discussion series led by journalism professionals from St. Louis Public Radio. Smartphones and digital cameras allow amateurs to take decent photos, but there's an art to capturing an image that tells a story. Get tips and tricks at St. Louis Public Radio's Mini J School, a new discussion series by professionals like me. Jeremy Goodwin. See the St. Louis Public Radio drone in action. Register at minijschool.org. All right, let's talk about Hyperloop, okay? So I think people look at this idea of super fast tube travel across the state, and there, there's one of two reactions. Um, one is it would be great to get from St. Louis to Kansas City in 23 minutes or 29 minutes, but the other reaction is this seems like fantasy, and it's almost like, let's go study whether magic is real or something like that. So the reason I'm bringing this up is there, you're part of another task force to study the Hyperloop. And I want you to kind of to address some of the skepticism that this could actually happen. And this is not just kind of a, a waste of time to study this type of thing. Well, it's funny, your, your listeners can't see I'm smiling because yeah. uh, since we've started talking about this, I really only get one of two one word reactions cool or ridiculous <laughs> those are the two things have you ever seen the, do you ever watch the simpsons i haven't really watched simpsons, there, simpsons there's much. an episode where uh this guy tries to bring the monorail in and the monorail is like kind of this fanciful transportation model that kind of almost bankrupts the town and, and the hyperloop has been compared to that but it's also been compared to like a revolutionary transportation as you mentioned cool or ridiculous right so 
how do you make sure that this, this is not ridiculous, this is actually cool? Well, one of the reasons the speaker asked me to do this, because we had this conversation, is that when we were first talking about that, I know several policymakers, as you know, went out to Nevada to where they have kind of a test site set up. And since they've done that, they and, and, and they're clearly saying, the company who wants to do this um, is clearly saying that a, a corridor such as St. Louis to Kansas City, uh, Kansas City to Denver, St. Louis to Chicago, a relatively flat corridor, um, is something that they're looking at to uh, pilot this on. Uh, when they came back from that, they thought it was incredible. And I, and I told Speaker Har, I said, you know, the problem with me, Elijah, is I'm not one of those guys, I've been preaching about infrastructure forever, I'm not willing to divert money from our current, our, you know, funds for this when we have current funding needs for our own infrastructure we have not solved yet. And he said, well, that's why this makes you perfect for this, because his point is, and I agree with him, is that we need to take care of what our needs are now. We don't want to lose sight of that. But that doesn't mean we can't have a parallel pass saying, what does transportation of the future look like? Not d dedicating significant state resources or tax dollars to that thought right now, really just in the form of this blue ribbon panel that will look at what the feasibility is, uh, what it would take for Missouri to actually play in this, uh, and how could the University of Missouri and our flagship campus in Columbia uh, be part of the research of this. I mean, they are, the research folks in Columbia are just absolutely ecstatic and an opportunity to get uh, possibly, uh, you know, some type, sort of grant or public-private partnership that would land them with the facility right in the middle of the heartland uh, that goes uh, hand in glove with other research things they're doing up at that uh, uh, up at that campus. And so it's a combination of things uh, that we put together that we think uh, makes sense to look at this. And uh, I tell people all the time, especially since this has been announced, we kind of feel like the committee kind of feels like. You know, um, we're those guys that were in the early 1800s in New York saying to the stagecoach manufacturers, we're going to put a railroad from New York to Los Angeles. And everybody said, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. That I'm was the monorail of the I'm, 1800s. I'm, 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 I'm going to keep building stagecoaches because that will never happen. Yeah. And so we don't want to be that state that says that. And I think it's also important for listeners to know that Missouri has been a longstanding leader in transportation issues. We were the start of the Eisenhower interstate system in the 50s in St. Charles County. The very first stretch was built here in Missouri. Our engineers are the ones who basically uh, figured out Apollo and put man on the moon uh, from engineering here in, in uh, Missouri. Um, we funded Charles Lindbergh's first flight across the Atlantic. Uh, we have a lot of firsts under our belt in Missouri when it comes to innovation and transportation. And this may not ever be something that materializes, but I don't think we can turn our back on it either. You touched on another issue, and this can kind of transition into what the legislature is doing, that the governor has spearheaded, and that's bonding for, for bridges. Mm -hmm. You've been engaged in trying to find more transportation funding probably even before you got elected, and it's a really difficult issue because clearly there's a need for more money for transportation, but you know, people didn't adopt the sales tax, right. they didn't adopt the gas tax, and it kind of puts uh, people like you and Governor Parson in a box where they have to resort to something like bonding, which is not universally popular. So as someone who watched the, watches the Senate proceedings pretty carefully and probably monitors the House, how confident are you that lawmakers could come up with some sort of bridge plan 
whether it's the governor's plan about bonding or whether it's the House plan that, that steers like $100 million in general revenue well, over four years. Well, here's the good news, is that all the, everybody's talking about trying to find a transportation funding solution and uh, really working on it, rolling their sleeves up. And in the past, we had different pieces of the puzzle kind of engaged, but not everybody was, you know, trying to get there. I don't know what kind of path gets us across the goal line, but, you know, the governor has an idea. The House, as you mentioned, has a different idea. A group of senators has a third idea. But all of those ideas end up funding in not a long-term fix, but at least a partial fix to our most critical need, which are bridges. You know, I tell people, if you drive on a, a road that's bumpy, it's an uncomfortable drive. If you, if you go to a bridge that's closed, it's a life changer. And so we have 10,400 bridges, the sixth most in the United States. Um, and right now we have 900 on the deficient list and 100 are going more are going on it every year. We can fix about 100 a year, so we're not really gaining any ground. The governor's proposal would accelerate repairing 250 of our worst bridges that have already been identified about, by community leaders across the state. Um, and therefore, just kind of get us kind of caught up on some of those bridge repairs. I'm not sure which plan makes it through this session. I do think a plan will make it out this session. And the governor, he doesn't care if it's his plan or your plan or the House or the Senate. If we can just do something to start trying to address the infrastructure, uh, that's one of the pillars, as you know, he has built his administration on. Yeah, the other pillar is workforce development. And that's uh, some of his plans have also kind of run into some conservative opposition in the Senate. You know, I'm actually writing a story about the midway point and what is past the Senate and the House and what hasn't. And in some ways, it's not really fair to say, well, you know, the big ticket items haven't passed yet, because usually those things don't pass until April right. or May. Mm -hmm. But it, it does uh, remain uh, a fact that the two pillars of his administration have run into some opposition in, in the chamber that you preside in. How, how confident are you that legislators will end up passing key elements of the governor's agenda before May? Well, you know, bold decisions and bold actions are never easy in this building. Um, you know, the easy things to, you know, rename the state tree or frog or street or something seem to get done pretty easily, and, and that's understandable. But the Founding Fathers wanted it pretty tough to make, you know, major changes. Uh, and the governor suggested some very bold um, proposals that I quite frankly agree with many of this people in this building agree with. But as you mentioned, there's when there's people that don't agree with it, then that's what brings what you hope to eventually get to is a compromise and some positions that will help move Missouri forward. Uh, we are in the economic development heart of the United States. I mean, if you look at the transportation corridor and the avenues and the things that we have to offer here in Missouri, we do not want to, we do not want to let this opportunity go. And so working with industry and educational institutions to work through workforce development, um, working with uh, economic development and the governor's proposal to kind of narrow that down to give it more of a laser focus to give them some additional tools to attract industries and let current ones expand. Uh, we're in a very competitive market when it comes to attracting businesses in our state. We have to have the same tools other states do. Conservatives don't believe we do, but at the end of the day, if we don't, I understand from business, you're not going to be competitive unless you have some competitive product, products to offer. Now, one thing the Senate did end up passing was an overhaul of the low-income housing tax credit program, which has been kind of an elusive policy goal since I think you started. You were there during the disastrous special session of 2011. I was. And I'm, I'm sure that you want to forget that ever happened. But, you know, the fact that it managed to pass at the Senate, it's basically like 77-ish percent of the federal outlay. Um, is, is 
definitely not insignificant. That means like over a 10-year, 15-year period, the state will save a lot of money. You're part of the Missouri Housing Development Commission that approves a lot of these projects. I'm curious, because the governor was not secretive about his support for the program, did you get any indication on why the governor didn't just restart the program soon after he took office? Was it just because he genuinely wanted to change the program? Like, wh why, why hasn't it been restarted, given that he clearly has the power to turn it back on? He wanted to be transparent. That's what Governor Parson is all about. He wanted the process to be very open and very public, to have policymakers weigh in on it so everybody knew what he was doing instead of just sitting down, because you're right. Um, he has the executive power just to go ahead and get, get going, issuing tax credits again. But he thought it was more important to have the elected officials that represent our people across the state uh, determine that, help determine and craft that policy. As you know, last year um, we worked on historic tax credits, and we will still have plenty of historic tax credits to issue to take care of our most beautiful buildings, but we lowered the cap to a more reasonable approach. So we did save about $20 million in historic tax credits uh, savings last year. Um, as you mentioned, uh, with the with the uh, with the goal of being at 70 ish, 76 percent of the federal level on um, low income housing, that literally, depending on the year and how much is, it could be anywhere from 20 to another 20 to 30 million. So um, we've taken significant steps to kind of rein in tax credits and get them to where the ones that are working good and given a return on investment for Missourians, we still have that uh, tool available, but also understanding that we have to balance our checkbook just like families do, and we want to make sure we're responsible with those programs. I, I got to ask, as a member of the commission that issues this tax credit, how much pressure are you getting from the people that, that, that get these tax credits? Because they, I mean, I'm looking at them from their perspective. Take, take, take away kind of the you know, criticism of it. Like, they are not able to get the state tax credit now, and therefore they're not able to embark on projects. I'm talking about for-profit companies and non-profit companies. So it would not surprise me if there was like an all-out blitz to try and get the best possible deal that they can. Have, have, has like the low-income housing tax credit developer community been willing to come to the table and willing to compromise on this, basically? I know many of those developers, uh, both in the profit, for-profit and non-for-profit space. Um, I, I understand their business model. I've seen the audit that you saw that came out uh, just a few months ago on how the, the type of return that these projects give to the state. The, the pressure was never, I, I can't tell you that they ever came in here one time to lobby for different dollar amounts. I will tell you, I'm sure that their folks probably weighed in with the legislators as that bill was moving forward uh, to try to present their business case to them. I don't know that for a fact, but that would be my hey, I would be shocked if they didn't. Yeah, I mean, that I mean, would kind of be malpractice right, not, to, not to be engaged in that process. That's what they do. And, and look, you know, the, the low-income housing tax credits, what everybody needs to understand, uh, that was started by Ronald Reagan federally mm -hmm. because what he said is, and in St. Louis's case, uh, if you look at Pruitt-Igo, which was run by the government, the government can't usually doesn't know how to do most things right. So his whole concept was let's privatize this piece of uh, housing. And it is the tool to use for states to provide to families who can't afford housing, low-income housing, to provide an avenue for they can have a roof over their heads. So it was started by a very conservative uh, president of ours back in the 80s. Uh, and so the, the whole premise was take it out of the government's hand and let the private sector do it, and they can probably do a better job of running it. All right. In the last few minutes we have, I'm going to do some quick hits here. Sure. I think one of the biggest things that's going to come before the Senate 
is the House's bill to restrict abortion pretty substantially, Nick Schroer's bill. Um, what's kind of your inclination about how, how that's going to go through that chamber? I, almost assuredly, there will be a filibuster. Um, and if this passes as is, this is going to make national news because this is one of the most restrictive abortion pieces of legislation I've ever seen. Um, what's kind of your sense of how that's going to fare in the Senate? Well, you're right. It's going to be um, it's going to be a difficult path, but we have a supermajority of senators is the number I, word or phrase I would use um, that are very respective of life and believe that is the core reason that they're in office. And uh, I know those senators will be very passionate about trying to uh, bring their point across to the people who are opposed to that bill. I'm sure it will be emotional. I'm sure it will be time consuming. Uh, but at the end of the day, there will be a lot of effort put forward into getting that House bill across the line. Um, a, I think it's, and I've, I've said this on other shows, I think it's inevitable that the legislature is going to put something on the ballot to either completely undo the state legislative redistricting that was done under Clean Missouri or make substantial changes to it. They're just, they're just, the question is whether the legislature is going to act this year or next year and what it's actually going to look like. Do you have any predictions on A, when the legislature will act on that, and B, what senators or, or reps want to do with yeah, that Yeah, you're issue. seeing various pieces of that move through bills now in the House and the Senate as we speak. And whether any of those make it across the line this year, I'm not sure. I think something to your point eventually does because many people in this building, and by the way, there are some, um, this is somewhat of a nonpartisan issue. It's not just all Republicans. There are many Democrats that have come to me saying, I really don't like the way this redistricting happened because you're really putting the power into the auditor and the demographer. And I don't care what party's in charge. It's not about, well, that currently happens to be a Democratic auditor. Uh, the Democrats are worried when it's a Republican auditor, uh, that it can be used as a very partisan tool for redistricting and not end up giving Missourians what they want in representation. Yeah, I do think, though, that while I've heard the back and forth in the arguments, um, if you don't craft a proposal that's appealing to voters and the, 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 the side that you know, advocated for clean Missouri is able to counterattack, then this could all be a philosophical exercise because it may just be voted down. How do you like, avoid this just being kind of, again, a philosophical exercise and the clean Missouri redistricting system just gets, gets reaffirmed by the voters? Well, to your point, you're going to have to put a very clear and understandable question on the ballot. Um, and I think that's what happened with clean Missouri is most people went in and voted for ethics reform in their mind. That's what they saw was a lobbyist gift ban, um, which, as you know, I carried in the Senate many years. So I, I have personally no problem with that. But um, I think that the uh, the problem was there was a lot of other things in that bill that people just didn't quite understand how it went. So it's incumbent upon the legislature to put a question before the voters that's very understanding and that the voters can can determine what the outcome is if that were to go in place. Okay, so you're a native of North St. Louis, not North St. Louis County, North St. City. Louis C City. And I'm sure that you know that the city-county merger issue is consuming a lot of oxygen where you used to live. Um, I'm Obviously, we don't know if this is going to be on the ballot yet, but I think the chances are pretty high that the, the proponents are going to have the resources to do this. Um, proponents of a city-county merger say it will create like a more streamlined government, get kind of rid of the fragmentation there. But members of both parties are really uneasy about this being put on a statewide ballot because it provides the possibility that if the city and county vote against it by 60 or 70 percent, it could still be implemented if the rest of the state 
votes for it. Have you come up with a position on the city-county merger, and what do you think, what message do you have for uh, city, city and county voters as they go through this process? Well, it's, it's a shame that we're at this point, is the first thing I'd say. There are certainly a lot of municipalities that I'm familiar with, that your listeners are familiar with, that do a great job of running their government, but there's certainly, I think everybody would agree, they're, they're, I, I, I was hopeful that some of those municipalities would take on some sort of consolidation or uh, effort to kind of combine resources on their own, and I'm not sure we would be at this drastic of a point. Uh, as a farmer St. Louisan, I have very much sympathy and understand that voters think they should make the local election on that first. Um, instead of a statewide election, I would tend to agree with that. The only problem we have is it could be somewhat of a constitutional problem, is that the statewide vote might be what the Constitution uh, requires. And so I'm trying to work with both people, uh, people on both sides of that issue, I should say, to try to understand if there is a path forward that seems to be, that works and fits the con uh, Constitution, but also gives the folks who live in that area the first voice. Yeah, I think the other criticism is because it doesn't involve school districts it's not really hitting at the major reason there's fragmentation in st louis i mean i moved to st louis county because of the schools and specifically the, the special education resources that were there and i i mean they they've been very upfront and by they i mean the city county merger proponents that education is not going to be a part of this right. do you think that was a mistake or do you think that it was just political reality that yeah. including education would have made this so controversial it would have collapse under its own weight. I don't know the crafters well enough to tell you this factually, but my gut would tell me that they left the schools out for a reason. I think that would have created a whole different hornet's nest and they were ready to get into. I would imagine. On, on a, the final note and on a final political note, do you plan on running for a full term as lieutenant governor next year? We haven't. That's a family decision that I have not made yet. Um, certainly it's something we're considering heavily. Um, Claudia and I, my wife and I uh, have four kids and um, running for a Senate office is a drain on your family. Running statewide is an incredible challenge on your family. Um, we just want to make sure that the family would be ready for that. And Missourians, you know, we want to make sure that Missourians think that uh, what Governor Parson's message and my message and, and helping him and the different things we're working on fits our Missouri values. And uh, it's something we're considering, and we just haven't made uh, that decision Do you yet. have to wait to – I mean, Governor Parson hasn't even announced whether he's going to run for a full term. I mean, that – probably has to be part of your consideration, too. Of well, I he hope does. he does. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you're right. He needs to make that decision. I know uh, Governor Parson is very much a family man as well, but he loves Missouri. He loves Missourians, as do we. Uh, and so you hope that's kind of the guiding principle behind those decisions. You know, Republicans are kind of in an unprecedented situation where they have most of the statewide offices, both U.S. Senate seats, huge majorities in the legislature. They've never had this much responsibility over state and federal government but with great power comes great responsibility i'm sure you heard former governor matt blunt talk about this at lincoln days that if you don't deliver and in the government the current governor said this if you don't deliver to the people then they can just vote you out and replace Correct. you with democrats how do republicans avoid basically falling into the trap where they have all this power but don't deliver well it happens to any organization whether it's a business or a sporting team or a political party when you get so many of the uh, offices and, and, and so much of the uh, 
uh, majorities that we have in the House and Senate, uh, you're going to have people that philosophically disagree on some key issues. But I think the way we, we continue to lead in those majorities is we find the issues that we can agree on, we make sure those are Missouri values and fit Missourians and what they're looking for, and we push that to promote the, making the state a better place, what we call Missouri Forward. Uh, and, there, and those issues I do easily identified. You mentioned one of them already, pro-life. You know, the Republican Party and conser every conservative I know, every single per conservative I know, and conservative Democrats, by the way, believe protecting innocent life is one of our number one jobs here. So we, we, we need to stay honed in on those issues, uh, do the best we can for Missouri economic-wise, and protect life the best we can. Well, Governor, I really appreciate your time this morning. I was thinking before we press record, you're the third lieutenant governor that I've had on this show because most of my career has involved like Peter Kinder being lieutenant governor. So I'm always glad to switch it up and have new people, even though Great. they've been on the show before. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. How could people either follow you on Twitter or follow you like on any other parts of the World Wide Web or get in touch with your office? Well, Mike L. Kehoe, uh, my middle name's Leo to answer that question. Uh, Mike L. Kehoe on Twitter, or we also have an official account. Um, it's LTGov Mike Kehoe. So uh, they can follow me on Twitter, a Facebook page, just Mike Kehoe, or there's also an official Governor Mike Kehoe. We're on social media. We, uh, I think you probably follow us. We, uh, we post quite a bit, and you'll, you'll uh, see what we're up to. I think you've even been verified at this point. So you've come That's what I heard. I didn't come understand what that. Our 21-year-old J student from Mizzou, who's our intern, told me we were verified and had no idea what that meant, but she explained it to you've me. You've come a long way since uh, you barely tweeted before. So until next time, so long.